0: I'll be reading from the book of Matthew, chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. Judge not, that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you, will clearly, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Thank you, Chad. Good morning, Redemption. All right. Uh, you can turn to Matthew seven. We're going to get back into the Sermon on the Mount this morning, um, but before we do, uh, and before we pray, uh, I just want to mention this. Um, I think that um, when people come to church, for instance, there's probably many of you here for the first or second time. Uh, when you come to church, when you when you come to Jesus, when you approach Jesus, who he is, and try to figure him out, know who he is. When you when you approach God's word, the Bible. I think that the way we primarily approach it, the way we primarily come to church, is we come to church or Jesus or the Word of God, thinking first about our needs. and And really, there's nothing wrong with that. We understand that. it's It's part of human nature. We have needs and and life is hard, and we're we're trying to figure all of those things out. Uh, but let me suggest to you uh, that what Scripture teaches us is that when we come to church, when we come to Jesus, when we come to God's word, what we really need to be seeking is first is God's glory. That it is first that we come to his glory because it is actually in his glory that we are going to get those needs met. It's, it's the understanding that if we're just seeking our needs, we're never really going to be able to satisfy our needs, meet our needs. And we're certainly never going to have or see or understand or receive the glory of God. But it's in his glory that we receive our our needs. Uh, Jesus says it this way in the Sermon on the Mount. We've already passed this point, but I just want to reiterate reiterate it. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all of these things will be given to you. Uh, Paul says very clearly towards the end of his letter to the Philippians, and my God will supply all of my needs according to His riches and what? His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And so Paul even directs us to seek the glory of God first, and in that we find uh, that our needs will be met. So as we approach the scripture today, as we approach what we're doing today, let's remember to keep God's glory firmly in focus. Let me pray and we'll get into this text in uh, Matthew chapter 7. Uh, Lord God, again, this is what we come to seek. Uh, We all have needs, we all have Uh, sin we all have issues that we're trying to resolve we've been sinned against and there are injustices uh, but ultimately uh, you're the one who holds all of this together who understands you're our peace you're our hope you're our understanding you're our wisdom you are our redeemer through your son Jesus Christ and you fill us with your Holy Spirit and so by the power of that filling of the Holy Spirit I pray that you'd open our hearts and our minds to your word and your glory this morning And we ask that in Jesus' name, amen. So we're continuing, like I said, in the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, again, I'll mention that the Sermon on the Mount is essentially Jesus coming to us and saying, there is a politic of the kingdom of God, and there is a politic of the world, and the two are very different. Uh, uh, The word politic means uh, how you live out your life in a community as a citizen, How you behave as a citizen. The kingdom politic is very different than the world politic. One commentator says it this way. Followers of Jesus prize what the world thinks perverse and reject what the world exalts. Followers of Jesus prize what the world thinks perverse and yet reject what the world exalts. Now, specifically towards this passage this morning... We all know this, both inherently and empirically. We know this by listening to and talking to our friends. Cody even mentioned it today. I had no idea he was going to do that. I thought it was great, and it fits right in with what we're talking about this morning. I think he does it. I think he kind of steals my notes and figures this out and then arranges things. But um, really, the spirit is all over the the connection here. Uh, We just know... And have been told very clearly by the world and the culture around us that judging and being judgmental is a terrible, 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 awful, 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 horrific, horrific, horrific sin. Did did I state that strongly enough? We are not to be judgmental. We are not to judge. That there is sin. And then there's being judgmental, and that is just awful. That's the worst possible person you can be. Even to the extent where i found where I can just make an observation. I am not making a value statement. I'm just making an observation, and I'm accused of being judgmental. I, like, I don't even get to have an opinion about anything. Anyway, I can't even say, this is what I saw. Oh, that's t- oh, I'm offended. That, that sounds terribly judgmental. And we know we shouldn't be judging. Okay? Yet, 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 here's some of the irony. And this is not me talking and observing. This is, I've been reading about this just over and over the last four or five years, and it's just coming to a head now. One area of life where judgmentalism is still cool. One area of life where we can judge all we want. One area of life where judging is not a sin, but rather it is an absolute mandate. One area of life where uh, judging is not a vice, but it's a virtue is when we judge real or perceived injustices, social injustices. We can do that all we want. Uh, Sam Biddle, who is a journalist, says that we live in an age of rage. He says that's our cultural context right now. And by the way, let me just say a word about Sam Biddle. I like reading Sam Biddle a lot. But you need to understand that I'm not up here quoting some christian right-wing conservative twinkie all right this guy is far as far from that he is not a christian he doesn't believe any of that stuff he's not right wing he's left wing he's he's not a republican i don't know what he's registered but i guarantee you he's not registered as a republican okay this is a guy who is in journalism and is taking a very serious look at what's going on out in the world and especially on the internet and he says we live in an age of rage. He says this. He says, rage is now what sells. Rage is what creates traffic on websites. Think Yelp. Think about that. He said, If we don't have rage, we're not selling our website. That's essentially what's going on. Have you been on Facebook lately? Yee. It can be very scary to dip your toe into those waters anymore. And he says, uh, as many others do, he says, uh, What's really driving this are these social justice warriors. Now, let me just be very clear before we go any further. There's nothing wrong with wanting social justice. There's nothing wrong with working towards justice. But it's interesting how we've begun to couch this now as a culture. Um, Several scholars now assert that there is evidence recently of something quite nefarious going on behind the scenes, or as they would say, behind the text, of, what, uh, of some of what currently passes for social justice. And one of them writes this, Kurt Thompson. So, I doubt with good evidence and reason that these ragers actually care about people. They only care about the cause and how their association with the cause promotes self. And I know this is hard for some of you to hear. You want to push back against this, but you know in the deep recesses of your heart, this is true. This is, tri- this is just another manifestation of human nature which has been around since the, the creation. And, and what starts out as something very worthy and very good, justice and social justice, what starts out as something worthy really ends up just being another hot human mess as we point fingers at others and yell, but we hardly ever lift a finger to actually help. Just very good at the rhetoric very bad at actually doing something. Now, now Micah 6 8. Micah is a, a prophet in the Old Testament. <clears throat> he writes, he's writing about what God wants from us, and it's in chapter 6, verse 8. And pardon the pun, but this verse has become all the rage lately. This is the one the ragers love, okay? This is, oh, I'm a Micah 6-8 person. My church is a Micah 6-8 church. I live in a Micah 6-8 community. I have a Micah 6-8 dog, and I eat Micah 6-8 food. It is, I mean, I'm t- now that's a little bit of exaggeration, but you get my point, okay? Here's what Micah 6-8, he, 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 it says. He says, God has made clear to his people what is good. So now he defines what's good. And what does the Lord require of us but to do justice and love kindness and walk humbly with our God? Now, one thing I think all of us could do a much better job at when it comes to doing justice is understanding and remembering (coughs) that when we do justice, it's not about punishing, shaming, and calling out the wrongdoer. It, it, that may be a part of it, but sometimes there are some contexts where that's not a part of it at all. You don't even you don't do any of that. But it seems like that's where we've kind of landed as a culture. That's the primary way we do justice. We want to punish, we want to shame, and we want to call out. And so justice ministries, which lots of churches have those now too. Very cool to have it. Oh, we have a justice Yes, we have a justice ministry True justice ministries, though, doesn't require the correct moniker, and it doesn't require only the first third of Micah 6.8, but true justice ministries requires that people be available, that their presence with other people is real, that they sacrifice, and that they show kindness, certainly to the people being violated. Yes, to the people being violated, we do that. But doing justice also requires, it's clear in Scripture what God wants. It requires gentleness, thoughtfulness, humility, and the hope of restoration to Jesus Christ for those who are the villains and violators. In other words, in helping the victims, you and I cannot become villains ourselves. We cannot go and violate the villains, thus making them victims in the process. And us, villains, we can't do that. Paul says this in <clears throat> Romans chapter 8. He says, do not overcome evil with evil. That's not how you overcome evil. You don't go and just show somebody else how much more evil you can be. That's never going to fix any. It's, it's the old um, movie Untouchables, that scene with uh, Elliot Nessa, Kevin Costner, and Sean Connery where Sean Connery's trying to explain to Elliot Ness how this works. He says, this is the Chicago way. He says, he says, if they bring a knife, you bring a gun. If they send one of yours to the hospital, you send one of theirs to the morgue. That's the Chicago way. Now, I bring that up only to mention that the Cubs are in the World Series. I just wanted to make sure, just wanted to make sure I got that in. But you get, the, you get the point. David Augsburger describes it this way. Okay, here you go. Uh, not the Cubs. David Augsburger describes this as the negative spiral of downward reciprocity that we get into. It's just natural because of sin for us to get in there. Paul says, listen, you got to be careful when you're confronting a sinner to restore them gently lest you become the sinner. You see all that? This is what this is, this is about here. It's very, very important. Um, I just think that we need to remember these things when it comes to doing justice. I, in fact, just personally, this is just me talking now, I lament the fact that many people who are enamored with Micah chapter 6, verse 8, they seem to be experts on the do justice part of the verse, but they fail at the verse's mandate to also be kind and walk in humility. That as they're executing justice, they have left the carnage of kindness and humility on the side of the road. And that's a problem. That is not the full picture of the ministry of justice that Jesus calls us to. Justice is not justice without mercy and humility. One commentator says it this way, some of us just need to get over ourselves. And this is exactly, all of that to say, this is exactly what Jesus is is getting at in these verses. And it's something called censoriousness. I'll define that later, but the term, the concept, is censoriousness. Here's the big idea today. The true practice of justice requires humble introspection and confession. So let me just reread these first five verses. We'll get to six eventually, but here they are. Jesus says, judge not lest you be... um, that you be uh, be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the log that's in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So you've heard me say this uh, several times in the last few months. The most misquoted verse in the Bible, the most misquoted, is from 1 Timothy chapter 6. Timoth- uh, Paul writes to Timothy and says, the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And, and the way we usually quote that is, oh no, 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 the Bible says money is the root of all evil. Okay. And we need to understand that's a terrible misquotation there because it changes the emphasis of the verse. The verse is about us and our affections, not about money. And by changing it that way, we make it about money and we release ourselves from the fact that we're the problem. It's the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, not all evil. Here you go. Here's a verse today, Matthew 7.1 that has been dubbed by many biblical scholars and many cultural commentators today as the most well-known and yet most misunderstood and misapplied verse in the Bible. And it's usually quoted this way, do not judge. That's about all. Just do, I know, yeah, I I know a Bible verse, do not judge, that's, yeah, I know a Bible verse. We're not allowed to judge, don't judge, do not judge. David Augsburg, I mentioned him before, I'll mention him even again later on, um, He he's done uh, decades of research into this where they, they talk to incoming freshmen in uh, colleges and universities all over the nation, so very, very detailed research on this. And they just ask them a, a number of questions about a variety of topics just to sort of get an idea of... Uh, who they are at 18, 19 years old, what their worldview is, what do they know, what do they not know? It's not, a, it's not an inherently Christian survey at all. It's just a, a general survey about worldview. And one of the questions they ask them is: Do you know any Bible verses? And if so, which one? Far and it's not even close. Far and away, the Bible verse that is cited is Matthew 7:1. Do not judge. This culture knows this Bible verse very well. The problem is, is they don't know the context at all. There are four verses that follow it that help us explain and understand what Jesus really means here when he says, don't judge. And so what is it that Jesus really means? Now, there's a couple things I'm going to mention here. The first one's going to seem a little bit goofy and a little bit novel. Why would you even bring it up? because i think it's just as goofy as the second one it's just not very well known the first thing that jesus is not saying here is we cannot have a court of law he's not saying you can't have a court of law you know there's a lot of judging that goes on in a court of law right he's not saying you can't have a court of law well why would you even bring that of course frank that's ridiculous he's not of course he's not saying it because tolstoy made the argument that that's what jesus was saying <laughs> it's just silly Here you go. This second reason, though, which is much more relevant to all of us in here, I would argue is just as silly because it just demonstrates that we haven't read or understood what Jesus is trying to say here. It also, secondly, does not mean that followers of Jesus are somehow to turn their minds into mush and suspend the practice of discernment, wisdom, or the analysis of life, character, and situations. Jesus is not asking us to live life saying, well, I really have no opinion about right or wrong because, frankly, who am I to say what's right and what's wrong? But that's the way most people interpret this verse. This verse is not about laying low and keeping quiet. Jesus is not asking us to lay low and keep quiet, but rather it is about aggressively and proactively Practicing wisdom and discernment in the community of believers, so that we all might be able to live a life of transformation in Christ Jesus. What Jesus is actually speaking against here is this notion of censoriousness. When He tells us not to judge, He says, "We don't want you to practice censoriousness." Uh, censoriousness, uh, and, and I'm going to define it now. Here, here's here's what it is. It is a type of criticizing judgment that seeks to exalt self by condemning others, think Twitter. Okay, Censoriousness is usually born of a bitter and angry self-righteousness that never takes a look at one's own shortcomings, but is certainly an expert on everyone else's shortcomings. This is the type of judging or judgmentalism or condemnation that Jesus is speaking against. He is not calling us to suspend judgment, wisdom, discernment, or even action. In fact, in verse 5, if you could ever read that far and not get hung up just on verse 1, you read down in verse 5, we are still to take action. We just need to make sure we've done the proper work in order to take that action. So what Jesus is teaching us is to seek his trust, I'm sorry, his truth, and trust him in the midst of that, and apply that first to our lives. And then, humbly and lovingly, we can go and apply it to the lives of those people who are in our influences of, of uh, our spheres of influence. So uh, our friends, our family, the people that we go to church with, and that you got to know this requires wisdom, discernment, and judgment, and it especially requires self-examination to make sure our heart is right in the midst of this. Somebody may have done something horribly, horribly, horribly wrong, unjust, and, and they need to be confronted. But we need to be careful that we're not getting our kicks out of confronting them. We need to be really careful of that. We're not somehow trying to exalt ourselves or make ourselves feel better about ourselves. Or we're not trying to make sure that everybody else understands that we're righteous and they're not, which is the way a lot of this confrontation goes on. We've got to be very, very careful of that. And what this requires then is this willingness by every one of us to dig deep and to look not only at the text of our lives, the text that everybody pretty much sees, But to dig deep and start to understand the text of our lives that's behind the text. What's really going on. In other words, all of us have a story. But we all need to understand what our story behind the story is. The stuff that's hidden, the stuff that's down there, the stuff that drives us to be who we are. That's what we need to start digging into. And I know that's hard and painful sometimes. But we can never really understand who we are and why we behave the way we are until we start to do that difficult work. And Jesus calls us to do that work. He says, if you're going to live in community and you're going to be somebody who's going to call out sin, you need to understand your own heart as well. Very important. That's the purpose of these other four verses. Wise and just examination of others requires simultaneously wise and just examination of ourselves. And it requires confession confession of our sin so what jesus is getting at in these uh, in verses 2 through 5 is loving confrontation of other sin and foolishness needs to be rooted in a foundation of honest and proactive self-examination and confession in other words as we try to reform others we need to be reforming ourselves as well here you go it's a call to genuine self-awareness I- i'm sure every one of us knows somebody who is very, very good at harshly condemning the teeny, tiny little sin. Um, The word there uh, sometimes people use is peccadillo. Peccadillo means a small sin. It doesn't mean a distant cousin of an armadillo. Peccadillo means a small, tiny, little sin. In other words, a speck. A speck. We all know people who are really good at condemning that tiny, little sin in somebody else, but are really horrible about acknowledging that big honking tree trunk that's jammed into their own eye, right? That's what Jesus is getting at here. Why? Why is this? Well, I'll tell you, I come from a long line of of people who uh, have traditionally and well-practiced the ability of having a log jammed into my eye and being able to point out your tiny little sin so I can speak into this. Why do we do this? Why do we do it? Because the the spec inspection detection makes the log-eye guy guy feel so much better about himself or herself. That's why. We believe it's our elevation based on their destruction, but are we really elevating ourselves or are we just bringing everybody, including ourselves, down when we do that? It's interesting. Let's talk about this just for a minute within the context of church discipline, that Matthew 18 thing. Uh, There, I think, is, is a great misunderstanding and fallacy that we bring to the table with church discipline. So Matthew 18, essentially, Jesus says this, if somebody sins against you, somebody has offended you, somebody has taken something from you, somebody has done something wrong to you, go to them yourself, don't ask somebody else, go to them yourself, sit down with them and show them their fault. And if they say, yeah, you're right, I did that, and they repent, then you have won your brother or sister, Jesus says. But if they refuse, if they're into denial or blame shifting or rationalization or mitigation, it wasn't that bad, you're just overly sensitive. Whatever it is, they refuse, then you got to go find a couple of other people in the community. And then you go with them and you sit down, and the purpose of that is to... Uh, confirm every detail of the situation. So now you have three people telling this person you really sinned against him or her. And if they still refuse, then what are you supposed to do? Then you go to the church leaders and you say, we've got a problem here, and you get the church leaders involved, and the church leaders go. And if the church leaders can't bring any light to the situation and the person is clearly guilty of this sin but refuses to acknowledge it or take responsibility for it, then you need to ask that person to leave the community of faith because it becomes a cancer in the community of faith, and you can't let that happen. Now, most of us know about church discipline because of those one or two cases occasionally that actually goes that far when 99.999% of church discipline cases are taken care of at that very first level. Hey, you sinned against me. You're right. I'm sorry. I repent. But we know about it because of the big one, the one where we have to embarrass everybody by, by, asking some, by telling someone, you really can't be around this community anymore. Well, here's one of the big problems I found in church discipline. When most people think of church discipline, they only think about how it is applied to others and never how it's applied to self. In other words, the truth is, Church discipline is not to be exercised or carried out on any level without starting first with the one who is going to do the discipline. And you start to marry uh, Matthew 7 with Matthew 18, and you begin to realize the truth of this. Someone sins against me. The first thing I need to do in the process of confronting the other person is to examine myself. to look for the log in my own eye to confess my sin and to make sure... That all of my junk has been dealt with first and that I go with the right heart to confront this person. The big idea behind this passage, Matthew 7, 1 through 5, like I said, we'll get to 6, is that we are to discern, call out, and judge with great wisdom and great humility in a context of self-examination and confession. If we're going to engage in the challenging ministry of confronting others in their sin, we need to start first at home. With ourselves. It's funny, in Luke's gospel, uh, Luke records parts of the Sermon on the Mount as well, and he, he records this part, and he adds the fact that Jesus told a little parable at this point in, in, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount. He adds a parable to sort of illustrate what he's talking about. Jesus says, can a blind man lead a blind man? And the answer is, of course, no. A, a person who can't see Really, the last thing they need leading them through life is somebody else who's blind. And Jesus answers his own question. He said, can a blind man lead a blind man? He says, no, of course not. If that happens, they will both end up in the pit. They will both be destroyed. They will both fall off the edge of the cliff. So if you have a log in your eye when you go to correct or judge someone else, it's likely that you're both going to end up in the pit or in the gutter or destroyed in some way. Because confession and self-examination is what leads to vision and clarity. Confession and self-examination is what leads to vision and clarity. I want to stop and just take you, to, take you to the cross, the crucifixion. Think about that scene there and the way Luke records it. You know, Jesus is crucified between two thieves, two other um, essentially murderers who are being crucified with him, and, and, and he's there, and, and, and think about the dialogue that goes on with these two other criminals and with Jesus. Do you understand that one of them is practicing ses- censoriousness, and the other one is practicing self-examination and confession? Do you see that? See, this thing is running through the entire New Testament, okay? The, the one uh, criminal is there, and he starts to talk trash at Jesus, and he starts to condemn Jesus. He starts to, he starts to tweet about him. He's, he's doing all this stuff, Facebook posts, the whole thing. And he's saying, you're just, you're just miserable. And the other guy hears this going on, and at first he pushes back against the other criminal. He says, he says don't you understand that we're really guilty. We belong up here on the cross. We are guilty, and he's innocent. Don't you get that? He doesn't deserve to be up here, but we do. And then he turns to Jesus, and he says what? He says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And what does Jesus say? He says, even today, you will be with me in paradise. He confesses his sin. He says, I belong on this cross. And then he goes to Jesus. And he says, save me, man. I can't save myself. Save me. The difference between censoriousness censoriousness and self-examination and confession. So let me talk just a little bit more about confession. Self-examination and confession first must be proactive, proactive. I'll speak a little bit autobiographically here. Do you know, Jackie knows, and I think she's in this service, do you know when my favorite time is to confess sin After I've been found out. That's my favorite time. I am very good at admitting that I'm wrong, that I messed something up, that I have sinned. Only after other people have discovered what I've done, after I've tried to make an excuse, after I've tried to deny it, after I've blamed someone else, after I've tried to rationalize it, and after I've tried to minimize it. After I've completed those six things and I'm boxed into a corner, then I'm like, yeah, okay, I sinned. That's my favorite time to sin. Not very proactive. What good is that? A couple weeks ago in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, you know, if you love somebody... And the only reason you love them is because they love you more and they serve you and they've sacrificed their life for you and they've helped you fulfill all of your dreams and they do everything for you. They live for you. They've made you, you their God, their idol, you, and that's the only person that you love. If you befriend somebody, if you're willing to be in a relationship with somebody because of all the benefits that they bring to you and not about anything that you can do for them, what good is that? He's, here you go. He says any stiff can do that. Do you understand that if you love and befriend only people who can do for you, Jesus compares you to a dead person? Even dead people can do that. Any stiff can do that. It's the same thing with self-examination and confession. What good is it when it's your last resort and you've been pressed into a corner? None. Anyone can admit fault when there's absolutely no other possible options. True confession is at root a heart issue ...that is practiced proactively because it's the right thing to do... ...not because it's the most pragmatic thing to do in the moment. But it's also more than that. True confession is about living in healthy relationship with God and with others. Let me give you some helpful verses here. Proverbs 28. Whoever conceals his transgressions, his sin, will not prosper... ...but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. James chapter 5. Therefore, confess your sins one to another... And pray for one another that you may be healed. There's healing in confession. There's healing in self-examination. If we just go on about our business without ever looking at ourselves, we're in trouble. We will not be healed. Uh, Psalm 32, verses 1 through 7. Listen to this. This is David, King David. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered... Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up by the heat of the summer. When I didn't confess, I was wasting away. My soul was being eaten up. I was not being healed. It was the opposite of that. I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with the shouts of deliverance. And he's saying that happens when I... I'm confessing and I'm self-examining. This is is the power of the Holy Spirit in us, prompting us to do this. When we live by this power, the gospel power of the Holy Spirit filling us and the reality of the resurrected Christ and the fact that we are new creations, we are able to live by repentance and confession and self-examination. That is when we are really ready for a ministry of wisdom, discernment, and judgment. And oh, by the way, that's when we're ready to be sanctified. And the reason we so desperately need wisdom, discernment, and yes, even judgment, is because sin is real. Ignoring it won't make it go away. Pretending it's not there won't help us. It's real, it's destructive, and it is the root of all injustice and suffering. You cannot do justice ministry. You cannot be a justice warrior if you're not willing to call out sin everywhere you see it including in yourself. So now, just a quick word about those who have been violated and have suffered as a result of someone else's sin. When it comes to the violated, we also need to understand, we we desperately need wisdom there as well. Um, We need to validate the violated. (laughs) We need to say, yes, this wasn't right. This wasn't fair. Someone sinned against you. I understand your pain. You have every right to be hurt. We need to validate, but we should not coddle. When you and I are violated, this is what we need as well. We we need somebody to say yes and affirm us. Yes, you've been oppressed. You were marginalized. You were sinned against. We need that validation. But coddling us, while coddling, I understand, it feels really good, and we want to stay there, and it gives us this sort of, attention that we desire, ultimately it is not good for us. Because coddling, what coddling does is it leads the person who's been violated and sinned against to start to find their identity in their oppression, the identity in their, uh, their identity in the victimhood. They begin to describe themselves that way, and they're not. They are a new creation in Christ. Yes, they've been violated. Yes, they've been sinned against. But Jesus is who reigns. And their identity is in Christ, not in their victimhood. And and what happens is coddling leads to wallowing. And we begin to just wallow. We we find a great comfort in this misery, and we just sit here and we wallow. And when we wallow, then we give up. No, the Holy Spirit has filled us. We have the power of Christ in us, the resurrected Christ. We do not give up in the gospel. So that last verse, verse 6, the one about the dogs and the pigs, Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Um, the, The reason that he's talking about dogs and pigs here is not because he's moved on to a new topic. It sounds like this isn't even related to what he's just talking about. The reason he goes to dogs and pigs is because he says, when you do practice this ministry Of judgment, of discernment, of wisdom, and you do start to go to people and in humility and kindness confront them about their sin, guess what? Some people are going to reject you. They're going to push you away. They're going to persecute you. They're going to call you all kinds of nasty names. They're going to tell you, you have no right to speak this into my life. He's saying, it's going to be hard. And so he's saying, understand that when you bring This truth into people's lives, not everybody is going to receive it. Have you noticed that? You know how true that is. And so let's take the pigs, for instance. The reason we don't cast pearls before swine is not because some people are pigs. I've actually had people say, this really offends me. Jesus is comparing people to pigs. No, he's not. Take an English 101 course for crying out loud and learn what metaphor is, okay? He is not saying that some people are pigs. He's he's telling a story or a parable here so that we understand. He says the problem is that some people cannot discern grace and truth. And this first paragraph, verses 1 through 5, is all about grace and truth. You see, a pig has no understanding of the value of pearls. If any of you have ever had a pig, put them in their pen and throw some slop over there and some pearls over there and and, and say, hey, Arnold, look, there's pearls over there. The pig isn't going to go to the pearls. He doesn't know that there's value in the... He has no conception that there's value in the pearls and not in the slop. In fact, he prefers the dung to the pearls. Do you understand that? Okay, this is why Jesus uses this metaphor. The pig has no ability, no Holy Spirit to discern wisdom, grace, and truth from folly. He's saying some people will never and cannot ever discern grace and truth. You need to accept that, realize that, and move on because God is apparently not working in that person's life at that time. Look for where God is working. Now uh, let, me, let me wrap this because I, I think that this, has, this loop has to be closed by something we haven't talked about yet that's very important. This is kind of closing the loop on this. None of this matters without forgiveness. None of this matters without living a life with a heart of forgiveness. Now, I've studied this a lot because I'm one who, uh, as I've, I've testified and confessed in the past, I, I've been very good at holding grudges. And so I, went, I, I spent a lot of time studying this for years and years and years. Why is it so hard for us to forgive? Why? Why is it so hard for us to forgive and why is it so easy for us to move towards retaliation and revenge instead? Why is that? Uh, Again, David Augsburg is one of the people that describes it this way. Dallas Willard has also done this very well, and it's been very helpful. The reason is because when you're sinned against, when somebody has offended you, when somebody has oppressed you, when somebody has done something wrong to you, they've taken something from you. They've taken something. Maybe it's something tangible like money or jewelry or whatever. They've taken something from you. Maybe it's not tangible, but maybe maybe what they've done is they've taken something from your reputation or your credibility or, or your market presence. Or maybe even worse, they've taken something you, from you in the form of hurting your heart. They've caused you pain. They've hurt you. They've taken a part of your heart away with this incredible pain that they have caused you. And, and so the reason it's hard for us to forgive is because what we really want is we want to be made whole again. And let me ask you something. Once somebody takes something from you, sins against you, offends you, can that person really make you whole again? That person has no ability. Here's what you want. You want time to be rewound to the time when it was before this offense against you so that you feel whole again. That's what you want. Can the person who offended you actually make you go back in time, make everything go back in time? Can't do it. They want you to, the original Superman that most of you never saw or understood or whatever, the original Superman movie, something awful had happened to Lois Lane. And so what did Superman do? He couldn't retrieve it. He couldn't fix it. He couldn't redeem it. So what did Superman do to to fix the situation? Anybody remember? He turned back time. How did he do it? He flew as fast as he could counterclockwise around the world. That's what he did. Any of you capable of doing that? Cody told me he was, so maybe you could talk to him. He could help you with that. That's the only way, apparently, we can make time go back. We want to be made whole again. You're asking the offender to do the impossible. And so we forgive. And it's hard because what happens when we forgive is we're taking the loss. Somebody takes something from us. And we say, okay, I'm going to live with that loss. I forgive you. I'm not going to expect you to give it back. I'm not going to expect you to make it right. I'm not going to expect you to make me whole. That's what forgiveness is. We are taking the loss. But that's really hard to do, isn't it? And so our hearts are bent towards retaliation and revenge. Revenge, therefore, becomes a way here, here's why we retaliate and we and we want revenge. Something's been taken from us. We're going to take something from them. I don't get mad. I get even, right? So we're going to fix this by bringing you down a notch as well. And, and ostensibly, the reason we do that is because we think it will make us feel better. I, Michael Corleone, I haven't quoted The Godfather in a while, but... <laughs> revenge tastes best when the plate is cold. He's saying you know what, you really want to feel good about your revenge, wait until they're not expecting it. It still doesn't even work then. David Augsburger, again, has gone, he's gone so deep into this. With his, he spent his whole life researching this. In 1985, he wrote a book called The Freedom of Forgiveness. It's considered a classic now. He says this never works ultimately, never works. Revenge, retaliation, you just go down that miserable spiral downward of negative re- re- reciprocity. And he says, oh, by the way, if you're a Christian, remember that Paul says in Romans chapter 12 that avenging is God's job. It's not our job. Revenge has never satisfied anyone. You still lost something. You can't be made whole by revenge or retaliation. And by executing revenge, actually you're only starting your own soul on the process of dying. One person writes this, the man who opts for revenge needs to dig two graves, one for his subject and one for himself. And and I'll tell you, that's the whole point of Jesus on the cross and why we point to the cross every Sunday here at Redemption Church. And in every congregation of Redemption Church, we always point to the cross because that's what happened on the cross. Do you understand that when Jesus was on the cross, he took the loss for all of us? He took everything that we've taken through our sin and through our offense, through our wickedness, and he took it upon himself at the cross. That's why the cross is so important. And then he gets resurrected three days later to newness of life, which is what we have. That's what we've had with baptisms today, that newness of life, because Jesus took the loss on the cross for us. We baptized five people after the first service. We're going to baptize two more tonight because they're acknowledging that Jesus took the loss. I'll take you back one more time again to the event of the crucifixion and the Roman centurion there who was standing there watching everything happen, the Roman centurion who was a part of the crew that crucified Jesus and was doing his job and doing his duty and doing what he thought was right. And he stood and he watched the crucifixion. He watched Jesus being humiliated and shamed and spit upon and reviled. And as he watched this, he finally testified himself, surely that man is the son of God because he took the loss for us. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you that you willingly sent your son to take this loss for us so that we could be made whole. We have wholeness now. It's the only true holistic healing process in the world is your gospel and your son on the cross. And the pain it must have caused you to see your son on the cross, it must have been devastating and yet you love us that much to do that for us. And so, God, I just pray that we would understand that, we would know it, we would appropriate it to our lives, that we would live with courage and we would live with kindness and we would live with humility. God, thank you. We pray this in Jesus.